This is a Federal News Network podcast. It's time for Fed Talk, the live show for Feds in the Know. From federal agencies to Capitol Hill, the attorneys of Shaw, Bransford, and Roth bring in experts from across the federal community to bring you inside the issues. Fed Talk is meant to provide general information about legal issues. However, the views expressed in this program are not intended to provide legal counseling. Listeners are cautioned not to rely upon any statements made in resolving legal issues they may face, but instead to consult with their own attorney about specific situations. Attorneys are not engaged in providing legal services while appearing on the program and are not responsible in any manner for the consequences that may stem directly or indirectly from reliance on any statement made during this program. Good morning and welcome to Fed Talk. Today is Thursday, May 14th, 2020, but you will be listening on Friday, May 15th. I'm Natalia Castro from Shaw, Bransford, and Roth. As most of our listeners know, last week was Public Service Recognition Week. And although last Friday was not a Fed Talk Friday, we are catching up this week with a show recognizing some of the federal employees working day in and day out to keep our government serving the American people. Now more than ever, as our nation battles the coronavirus pandemic, we are seeing heroes emerge within our federal workforce to meet the needs of the American people. Today, we are going to dive into a few essential services federal employees are providing and discuss what they need to continue their mission. Let me start by introducing our panel of guests. First, let me welcome Chad Hooper. Chad is currently serving as the national president for the Professional Managers Association, representing non-bargaining unit employees at the IRS. Good morning, Chad, and thanks for joining us. Good morning, Natalia. Thank you for having me. Next, we have Joseph Anelli. Joe is the Executive Vice President of the National Association of Federal Veterinarians. Joe, welcome to the show, and thanks for chatting. Yeah, thank you for having us join you. Finally, we have Brian Renfro. Brian is Executive Vice President of the National Association of Letter Carriers. Good morning, Brian. Thanks for talking with us. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So before we dive in, I want to remind everyone that Fed Talk is brought to you by Long-Term Care Partners, LLC. Long-Term Care Partners administers the Office of Personnel Management-sponsored Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program. To learn more, visit LTC Feds today. As we mentioned, we have a really great group here today to talk about the federal employees who are working day in and day out to continue serving the American people despite incredibly atypical conditions. And what I think is so interesting about our panel is that it's these different associations touch the American people's lives every day in very different ways. So to get our show started, I wanted to introduce all of your organizations and give you the chance to talk about some of the work that your members do and um, what the situation has been for your members. So Chad, let's start with you. Can you tell us a little bit about who PMA is? Thank you. Yes. So the Professional Managers Association since 1981 has represented managers and management officials um, and others in the non-bargaining unit here at the Internal Revenue Service. So we've been working hard to administer um, stimulus payments under the CARES Act and the current tax filing season, among the myriad other programs that the IRS is responsible for. Yeah, I think one thing we're really going to get into is the the breadth of what the IRS does and how they are, you know, working right now to administer their regular tax season, as you mentioned, as well as all the other programs that they are working on to keep the American people and the economy afloat during this very strange time. Um, you know, and I can't wait to talk more about that. Let's go now to the National Association of Federal Veterinarians. Joe, can you tell us a little bit about NAFV? Sure, absolutely. Uh, I think federal veterinarians are probably the least understood. Whenever anybody thinks of a veterinarian, they think of somebody who treats their pet animals. Well, federal veterinarians have been the unsung heroes in the United States and the world. And the National Association of Federal Veterinarians has been representing these heroes for the last 102 years, almost from the very beginning. Dating back to uh, May 29, 1884, President Chester A. Arthur signed the Animal Industry Act, creating the Bureau of Animal Industry. And federal veterinarians were a part of that from the very beginning, set to protect human and animal health. 
The Bureau of Animal Industry was charged also with preventing diseases of animals from being used as food. And today that mission, a 136 year old tradition continues to ensure that the US has the safest, most abundant and low cost food supply in the world. And as well as ensuring that animal diseases don't reach humans, these folks are working as epidemiologists and policy experts at NIH, FDA, CDC, the White House, US Public Health Service, USDA's Food and Safety Inspection Service and their Veterinary Services Group, as well as the military, and that's just to name a few. Um, but today's COVID-19 pandemic is uh, presenting quite a unique challenge to that mission. Well, Joe, thank you so much for that overview. It's really interesting to hear about the history of federal veterinarians. I think a lot of Americans don't realize that every time we eat something, we are experiencing the outcome of hard work from federal employees who work hard to make sure that our food is safe and secure. And I think the policy role is very interesting there as well. And I know as we move uh, further throughout the show, we're going to touch on that a little bit more. So I'm excited to come back to that. Um, for the National Association of Letter Carriers, Brian, why don't you talk to us about who some of your members are? Sure. So we're the labor union that represents city letter carriers employed by the United States Postal Service. Uh, we currently have about 285,000 members. 205,000 of them are active letter carriers. Those are the men and women you see in the blue uniform that deliver mail in all 50 states, Guam, Puerto Rico, and the Virgin Islands. Um, we, as a union, were established 131 years ago in 1889. Wow, that's incredible. And I think it's you know interesting when we talk about the Postal Service because there's a unique element to remember, which is that the Postal Service is a constitutional mandate. You know, we are called to have a national, you know, federal system for getting mail to people. And I think in these times more than ever, it's important to remember that, you know, it's not just another branch of the federal government, but it really is something that since our nation's inception has been um, a way that the federal government is meant to interact with people's lives. And, and I think that that's very interesting. And as we get more into the discussion about what the postal service, what the postal employees are experiencing and what that means for the American people, we're going to dive some more into those important points. Now, I, I want to turn the conversation a little bit, now that we know who your members are, to a conversation about how your members are fulfilling their mission during the pandemic. And to start that conversation, I want to go to the Professional Managers Association. Uh, the IRS has been in making headlines a lot in the last few weeks because they are the agency tasked with delivering most of the stimulus payments to the American people. Um, and I would love to hear from you, Chad, about how your members have undergone that process so far. And if you could tell me a little bit more about what the economic impact payments are. Sure, um, thank you, Natalia. The economic, um impact payments um, under the CARES Act, I think, have gotten a lot of press. These are those $1,200 payments um, to individuals with incomes under $99,000. Um, and there's a $500 increment for dependents um, if that dependent was eligible for child tax credit um, on top of that. So that um, CARES Act came to us uh, amidst a filing season, uh, which had been extended by the president from April 15th to July 15th. And for the first time in American history, we also delayed the due date for payments. As far as what we've been doing during this time, the my membership has been working around the clock to try to first implement telework um, across our agency, which handles quite a bit of paperwork um, that requires face-to-face -face sort of in-person work. Um, and, and so there is a part of our system which is antiquated in doesn't permit us to be effective um, working remotely. Um, we have though had some successes um, where our members have worked really to rally um, these new telework programs. And we've gotten to, uh, I think at, at our peak, 52,000 teleworkers um, out of the 76,000 or so IRS employees. So we've made a lot of progress. 
Wow. Yeah. That transition to going remote is very interesting because, and I know this is something that in the latter half of the show, we're going to talk more about. Uh, there are a lot of longstanding in, across the federal government. There are a lot of longstanding barriers to modernization and technology. And um, we're going to get into how that has impacted telework. Um, but right now, I believe we need to cut to our first break. So I'm going to give you guys a moment here. You guys are listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. We're going to continue this discussion with Brian, Chad, and Joe right after a word from our sponsors. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. We are just diving into the important work of employees within several different areas of the federal government. And we had started that conversation by learning a little bit about the economic impact payments that the IRS is working to administer. A lot of people, Chad, um, I don't think have a really good concept for what it looks like for the IRS to be delivering such a large stimulus package. And at least for me, I think my mind immediately goes to 2008, which I would see as like the benchmark for what it's like for the federal government to deliver a large stimulus. And I'm curious um, from you how the situation in 2008 differs from the situation today and what their similarities are. And even if our IRS workers can rely on any of the data and blueprints from 2008 to help them with administering these economic impact payments. Thank you, Natalia. So in 2008, we administered um, a stimulus, you know, relating to that economic downturn. Um, We, you know, the challenges at the time were obviously quite a bit different. We had uh, the full complement of the IRS workforce was working. um, And that definitely was an initial difference. Um, And also, was paid not amidst the filing season. So we also had some additional bandwidth to sort of focus on how we could move that forward. It did take us um, at IRS about four months, 12-ish weeks, I want to say 12 weeks, to to begin delivering stimulus checks. Um, It required a lot of, you know, regulation writing and employee training. um, And we had to develop all kinds of new systems and programming of our very old sort of mainframe computer system. So in that way, um, it it was a little bit easier. Um, We also, at the time, the workforce had, we had 20,000 additional employees as compared to today. Um, And in real dollars, our budget is $2 billion less today than it was in 2008. And that's even with the um, 290 or so million dollars that were appropriated um, for us to help administer CARES. Um, Today though, the IRS like can celebrate some successes. So building on the 2008 material when uh, IRS through our legislative um, outreach functions learned that this was sort of coming down the road, um, we were able to kind of scramble the work that we have done in the past. Um, a lot of our staff fortunately um, were here uh, for the 2008 stimulus and continue to be here today. So we were able to rely on some institutional knowledge that we had banked um, and we were able to in four weeks um, issue 130 million of these uh, CARES Act payments. It was about roughly $200 billion that we were able to infuse almost immediately um, through I think what I've been quoted before saying is like, it felt sort of like a miracle. Um, and so, yeah, we, we were able to give that first 100 million payments right away um, while still also getting out the regular tax refunds. Wow. You know, when we talk about Public Service Recognition Week and recognizing the important work of federal employees, I feel like what you just said should be one of the things that the American people immediately think of. In 2008, with billions less in funding, some 20,000 less employees, it took 12 weeks to get out these stimulus payments. But in this situation, the fact that 
you said 130 million Americans have received their stimulus payments in, in maybe a month. That really is just a testament to the dedication and commitment of IRS employees. And I think that institutional knowledge is another really important piece of it that you mentioned. We talk a lot on this show about getting the right expertise in government, getting the right leadership in government, and you know, being able to rely on knowledge from over a decade ago and utilize it in a new crisis, that is why that expertise is so fundamentally important. Something else that you mentioned is that this situation is uniquely in the middle of a tax season. Um, and you mentioned that some of those deadlines have been extended for the American people. How does that impact your members and their work in administering the tax season? So in administering the tax season, obviously we're presented with challenges we've never had before. Um, currently we're sitting on millions of pieces of correspondence that actually my uh, fellow guest here, Brian has probably heard about. We, I'm sure we have trailers of mail that we have not yet been able to process even from the post office. Um, because our mail run operations until April 27th were fully shut down. Um, that uh, obviously we, so, you know, any paper tax return that we had received, um, identity theft claims, amended tax returns, um, any sort of paper correspondence has not been worked. Um, and now that we've uh, returned to service a limited amount of staff to begin um, sort of getting our arms around the backlog of correspondence, um, we, our regular paper product processing pipeline uh, also re remains um, sort of at a skeleton crew. Um, so it will take us a long time to recover from, from that component of our work. Fortunately, since 2008, the American public's uh, desire to use electronic tools to interact with the IRS um, has helped us quite a bit and has certainly helped all of those taxpayers. Um, those electronic filings are processed systemically um, and don't require human interaction in order to, um, you know, get refunds out or, or get payments posted. And so we, we hope that that kind of interaction with the IRS will continue um, because it is the fastest and easiest way to deal with us. Um, we we're having to also administer this filing season and this new um, stimulus payment without a customer service operation that is functioning. Um, and that has been, I think, for my members and their staff, the, the thing that is hardest for us to stomach. We want to show up for our taxpayers. We want to help people comply with the code. Um, it is very complicated. There are so many new resources available and tax credits available to small businesses that we can't help with um, because we simply don't have people to answer the phone. We never were able to modernize the stand-up electronic or virtual call centers. Um, so the, unfortunately, um, in this filing season, our service, which I know we um, are criticized for roundly, usually in the best of times, um, is is lacking if 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 even existent in any in any sort of sense. That that part um, is is very challenging for us. And I know um, I, I spoke with some members actually this week who are working really hard to uh, stand up in some fashion uh, our customer service phone apparatus uh, so that taxpayers can ask questions again and can get help um, if they received a, an economic impact payment that was computed improperly um, or, or any other text question they may have. That's great. I think that in, you know, with longstanding modernization concerns and barriers, you really do see the the desire of individual employees to combat those, you know, more systemic barriers to progress and try to do the best that they can for the American people and, you know, seeing that customer service systems are down and trying to find workarounds. Like I said, when I started this show, you really see the heroism of individual employees. And I know we're going to dive later in the show into what, why some of those, you know, systems have never been able to modernize and what the IRS needs now in order to rectify some of these concerns. But I want to go to the National Association of Federal Veterinarians with Joe to talk a little bit about how the federal veterinarians are fulfilling their mission 
during this pandemic? Before I listed off a uh, an alphabet soup of federal agencies that, that our members work at, um, I'll go into a little bit because folks don't understand what federal veterinarians do. Um, for, for example, we have folks working at the National Institute of Health. <clears throat> They're either doing original research, they are um, caring for the animals that are used in research, or they are reviewing and assigning um, research proposals and funding to have other institutions do that work. We have folks at the Food and Drug Administration who are involved in licensing of vaccines, licensing of tests, um, so that uh, these folks work really at that interface between human and animal health. The um, CDC, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, we have a, a large number of veterinarians working there, working alongside their physician counterparts, working directly with, for example, we've had someone setting up a, a, a field hospital. We've had folks that are dealing directly with the human-animal interface, looking at whether animals can become infected with COVID-19 and whether or not they can transmit that virus to, to uh, humans. We've had folks working at the White House, uh, working since 2006 on avian and pandemic influenza, and have been involved in writing the National Pandemic preparedness plan, the thing that's being followed today. We have folks in the U.S. Public Health Service. Uh, they are also working at a lot of research facilities, federal research facilities, taking care of animals that are used in, in research, or again, setting up uh, field hospitals, working in logistics, working uh, directly um, in tracing back uh, COVID-19 uh, patients, uh, and then something that I think you've heard more about recently was with USDA's Food Safety and Inspection Service. Um, these are the veterinarians that oversee the inspectors in all of the meat and poultry plants across the country. When you look at the meat stamp USDA approved, it's our members that are doing that approval. Um, and, uh, and these folks are... Well, and, and then we have um, a veterinary services group within USDA as well. The, uh, the veterinary service group deals with the live animal component of that before they go to a slaughter plant. And then our food safety and inspection service folks deal with it from that point on until it gets to your grocery store shelves. And then we've got a lot of veterinarians that are in the, uh, the military as well. Uh, they are either staffing... Um, animal hospitals that are on military bases, taking care of military service people's pets, or they're working with horses that are used for um, security on bases or working with, uh, with working dogs that sniff out bombs and, and so on and taking care of those. But um, specifically with this COVID-19 situation, these, uh, these guardians of food safety and animal health are continuing to report to work despite the risks of contracting COVID-19. Uh, while many industries can, uh, can work from home, it's not possible for these folks to be working at home. So they're going into packing plants where there are large numbers of employees. I believe there was one plant where 3,000 employees that are working shoulder to shoulder day in and day out are contracting COVID-19. And they're still going into work in these uh, little hot spots. Um, and they don't do this for the pay. Um, certainly, they're getting below average um, salaries for the private sector veterinarians. Uh, but they have a commitment to providing safe food for the American public. As more and more plants begin to close with high numbers of infections of their plant employees, uh, USDA's Food Safety and Inspection Service still has our members and, and other inspectors showing up to these plants to ensure that it is not the federal veterinarian or federal inspector that's causing these plants to close, but their own employee issues. I think that's really interesting, specifically the, the dynamic of these employees really trying to navigate these impossible situations of trying to fulfill their mission 
well, you know, putting themselves and even their families at risk. And I think as we get into the later half of the show and we discuss what these employees need to be protected in the in this unbelievable situation, it's going to be really important to understand that dynamic of the, the importance of continuing to fulfill their mission while also balancing their own health and safety. And that's uh, it's a very difficult choice, and um, and it's a choice no one should have to make, and that's why we need to make sure these federal employees have the resources that they need. We are going to cut to our next break right now, and as soon as we come back, we're going to talk to Brian about uh, letter carriers across the country and how they are continuing their essential constitutionally mandated mission during these very uncertain times. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Shaw, Bransford, and Roth. One team working all three branches. Judicial, legislative, executive. Judicial. SB&R employment attorneys offer specialized legal representation for federal managers. Legislative. Lobbyists in government and public affairs advocating for corporate clients. Executive. Produces two free weekly newsletters, Fed Manager and Fed Agent. Shaw, Bransford, and Roth is your one destination for all three branches of government. Online at shawbransford.com. SB&R. Client-focused. Results-driven. Welcome back. You guys are listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. I am here with Chad Hooper, National President of PMA, Joe Anelli, Executive Vice President of the National Association of Federal Veterinarians, and Brian Renfro, Executive Vice President of the National Association of Letter Carriers. Now, we were just talking about some of the work that IRS employees and federal veterinarians do and are continuing to do during the pandemic. Brian, you know, like I said, so many people have been within your organization, continuing to do their mission, even with heightened risk of exposure. And that unfortunately means that there have been a few cases within the post office. And I was wondering if you could speak to what that looks like. Yeah, we've had nationally, um, we've had a number of, of cases of positive cases, um, those quarantined and unfortunately deaths. Uh, there are, I think it's worth pointing out, there's about 620,000 postal employees Wow. In total, currently we have around 5,000 of those are, are quarantined, so they're not at work. Of those 5,000, about 900 are confirmed positive cases, and about 500 of them are presumed positive that we haven't gotten confirmation, but they're presumed positive. But I guess the, the, on the, the, the good news is we have about 12,000 that have previously been quarantined that have now returned to work. So wow. we're starting to see some progress there. But um, I, I think the saddest thing of all is about 60 postal workers have passed away um, from complications related to COVID-19, including 14 city letter carriers that, um, that I represent. So, you know, that while we constantly uh, work with the Postal Service to, to ensure that we have all the proper safeguards in place and, and then deal um, with those through um, the, the different leave issues that arise, um, you know, with those that need to be quarantined or, or tested or whatever the case they've been exposed, whatever the case may be, um, you know, we, we have, unfortunately, you know, with an organization our size, it's we're going to experience tragedies. But um, I, I think overall, the, the whole process of, of when it's necessary to quarantine, missing work, the, the whole child care issue with so many people, you know, not being available, daycares closed and that sort of thing. We've dealt with that quite a bit with our members, both with the leave that we have that's provided that we collectively bargained and then um, the leave that was provided through the Families First Coronavirus Response Act, the emergency paid sick leave and the extended FMLA has been um, something that, that we've worked with the Postal Service to implement and I think it's been very beneficial um, to our members and particularly those carriers that um, haven't been around all that long, and maybe they don't have a you know a large bank of sick leave like some of some of the those that have got more tenure. Um, so it, it's 
We're dealing with it day to day. Um, and, and I guess to a large degree, the, the numbers that we would see within the Postal Service, despite the risk in performing our essential duty, really reflect sort of the numbers we see nationally because we really are everywhere every single day. Um, so while it's very tragic that we've lost those that we've lost, um, we, we continue to, to perform our work and, and do our best to be sure that we protect our employees to the extent we can, that those that need to, um, that need to use leave for whatever reason related to this, that they have the ability to do so. Yeah, absolutely. I, I really, our, our heart goes out to all of the federal employees who have unfortunately lost their lives while performing their essential missions. And I do think that, you know, like you said, those are people who are going to be remembered as, you know, heroes who performed their mission for the American people during a time when most people can stay at home, but, but they cannot. Um, and, and they will be remembered that way. I love that you brought up some of the leave options that your members have and that has been instituted by legislative action. Um, and, you know, through working closely with the Postal Service and these different agencies to get them implemented. Those are very important. And for, you know, the next portion of our show, I want to turn the focus on to how agency leadership and leg legislative action is working to ensure that federal employees have access to what they need um, and, and what that process looks like. And so, Chad, I want to turn it over to you. You mentioned when you were discussing the current state of play at the IRS that there are, you know, millions of pieces of correspondence that you guys have been getting in that you have not been able to do anything with because your employees are teleworking and are, you know, doing these, the, these functions remotely. Um, I have recently heard that the IRS is going to be reopening some of their offices um, for mission critical in-person functions. Can you give us a little bit of uh, the kind of the state of play of what that looks like and what steps the agency is taking to make sure that those people coming into work are protected? Sure. Thank you, Natalia. Um, in late April, um, we requested the return of approximately 11,000 employees, um, first to 10 of our largest um, locations, and then recently, um, the, actually it was this week, to 10 additional locations. Um, these 11,000 employees um, are volunteers. No one is being directed back to work. Um, and we, you know, we're trying to staff, obviously, those, the pieces um, of the IRS where uh, you have to come to the building to do the work. So such as, like we talked about opening the mail, um, processing a paper tax return, uh, you know, obviously no one wants an IRS employee to take home a cardboard box of their tax returns to their house to process them. It wouldn't work. Um, and... Uh, and then a number of our call site employees, it's actually the majority of these 11,000 um, employees. And that, those 7,500 or so um, of that figure who are meant to work the phones, um, you know, we're, we're trying to scale up to that number. So I don't want anyone to feel that there are 11,000 people working in the office today because that isn't the case. We have... Um, roughly 2000 phone volunteers at this time, just to give you an example of, of what we're up against in trying even to solicit for volunteers. Um, we have been able to, so from the employee safety perspective, because that is, that's why we haven't directed anyone back to work, um, is that at IRS, we um, first wanted to incentivize volunteers who were willing to return um, to sort of capture the risk that we understand that they would bear um, in making that decision to volunteer um, by uh, giving a, um, we're calling it an intention, a retention incentive, a 10% uh, salary bonus to employees who return to volunteer um, and then a 25% bonus for those um, clerks in our mailrooms. Um, the mailrooms have always had a higher risk uh, profile as it is um, and now more so than ever. Um, we, uh, the service has notified the Professional Managers Association that they intend to have funds available to pay that increment for at least a month, um, but I think for longer. Um, 
And there was also talk about giving um, an additional cash bonus to uh, those volunteers who work 20 work days or more um, because they don't have to come in every day to volunteer. They may choose to come in a few days a week or something like that. Um, from the safety perspective, um, we the IRS was able to, at the very last minute, secure a supply of roughly a million three-ply surgical masks. Um, and we have hand sanitizer and disinfecting uh, products for these limited locations. Um, that's sort of just us um, consolidating our supply of those, our existing supplies, into these few offices. The IRS operates out of more than 350 locations worldwide. Wow. Um, so that's... Um, that having that PPE available is very important. The IRS worked day and night to develop signage um, to emphasize social distancing and to the requirement to wear a face covering as you enter the building. Um, how to wash hands. We're giving additional breaks um, even for employees who come in to go and wash their hands with soap and water um, each hour. Um, and so from that perspective, I think that the IRS is being very as careful as they can be acknowledging that some of our work has to be performed in person um, for a lot of different reasons. Um, and then for the final thing I wanted to talk about was just like our commitment to social distancing and IRS even prior to our um, service-wide evacuation order, um, we had implemented a 50% staff reduction that was just putting half of our teams on administrative leave so that literally every other desk was empty now that we've, we're returning this uh, limited population of staff to the office, we actually had our real estate people went through and actually removed furniture um, so that people cannot even sit next to each other because those chairs aren't there anymore, the tables aren't there anymore. Um, they've closed a lot of the like cafeteria sort of like gathering places um, in order to promote that kind of safety. Wow, that's really interesting. It's clear that the IRS is really taking steps to make sure that those people who are returning, first of all, aren't, you know, high risk. They're people who feel that they are able to return. I think that volunteer element is really important. And also that they, you know, it's good to hear that they have access to some of these PPE. I know when they first made the announcement, there was some concern that they might not have access to it. So it is very, you know, reassuring to hear that they were able to secure um, on those masks. That's very important. And I know access to PPE, closing down offices, those are also things that our National Association of Federal Veterinarians um, is experiencing, our federal veterinarians. And Joe, can you talk a little bit to what it's like in these packing plants where, like you said, traditionally people are working shoulder to shoulder? How is that different now? And what does that mean for our veterinarians? Well, thank you. The, the, um, the challenge in these slaughter plants is, uh, is sort of twofold. One, I think any of us that have gone to the grocery store to see the, uh, the meat area sort of sparse are recognizing that there, it is taking a toll on the amount of animals that are getting slaughtered. Uh, as of May 13th, there were 47 uh, processing plants that have closed and more than 300 of the inspectors of our, our inspectors have tested positive for COVID-19 or on self-quarantine as, as they struggle to maintain these facilities open. Um, there's already a, a shortage of staffing within the Food Safety and Inspection Service. Um, FSIS is running a, a national deficit of 19% vacancies. So despite these obstacles, our FSIS inspectors are getting the job done at great hardship to themselves, traveling great distances to cover plants with vacancies, um, be it from short staffing or, or illnesses. The, um, we did a survey of our uh, membership to find out how FSIS leadership was, was doing in, help, in terms of helping to protect employees. And the, the survey was kind of interesting because it came back as uh, poor to non-existent, but they're doing the best they possibly could. So it's this, this link between the entire country is short on protective masks, N95 masks or even cloth masks. So FSIS was unable to provide them to employees, but they at least stepped up with offering employees a $50 credit to go out and buy their own wherever they could. 
many of the processing plants who are able to get them because they're buying them in the thousands were also sharing them with the FSIS inspectors. So they were getting them covered one way or another. But, but also to, to make matters worse, it's not the FSIS or federal veterinarians that are causing these plants to close. The plant employees themselves are working shoulder to shoulder and becoming ill. According to the CDC, as of May 8th, 115 meat and poultry processing facilities in 19 states had closed. Out of 130,000 processing plant employees, 4,912 were positive, and there were 20 deaths. So the plants themselves, the, the major companies, are having to close to protect their own employee health. And as a result, uh, FSIS is still being able to provide employees so that the plants that are open can remain open. But all of that, even from the COVID-19 standpoint, is causing a backlog of animals awaiting slaughter. And farmers are having to euthanize these animals because they don't have the space for them, particularly the swine industry that raises animals in indoor facilities, as these animals get heavier, they can no longer fit in the same size area they were kept before. And as they get heavier, the slaughter plants are not able to process them. So they are having to euthanize them. That takes a whole different category of our membership, the federal veterinarians that work for APHIS's veterinary service, are having to work with producers on finding humane slaughter methods and ecologically sound carcass disposal methods so that these animals that can no longer go through slaughter plants can be put down so that there isn't further economic loss to the farmer. Farmer can't continue to feed animals that he can't be making money on. So we've got a whole cascade of events within the food chain that, uh, that our membership is, is having to, to work with. And all of that is with this unprecedented backdrop of global shortages of personal protective equipment. So our folks are, are exposed in many places uh, to the large number of slaughter plant workers that are getting infected. Now we're facing that gap in the supply chain of animal proteins. And, and almost four months after the pandemic started, our members and their counterpart inspectors and plant employees are, are finally getting the necessary attention to these issues. Uh, FEMA has begun to work with the industries and the processing plants to help provide PPE now that these, these plants are identified as, as essential and these employees are essential workers. FEMA has stepped in to help with such things as the carcass disposal issues, providing PPE to not only our membership, but plants in general, so that they can remain on the job and remain safe. That's really interesting. And I think that, you know, public-private partnership to get these things taken care of and to understand the necessity of, you know, our federal veterinarians is very important. We are right up against our final break here, so I'm going to have to stop us. But when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about letter carriers and how the Postal Service is, you know, issuing guidance to try to help their members. And then we're going to end our show with a conversation about what our legislature can do to help the federal employees in these, you know, across the federal government doing these jobs. You guys are listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. We will wrap up this discussion and start our last segment when we get back. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. We are entering our last segment of the show. This has been so great. We're talking about the heroism of federal employees across government agencies, and we're also talking about some of the struggles that they have experienced. 
So Brian, I'm going to pass it over to you to tell us a little bit about the guidance the Postal Service has given their employees for navigating this situation. Yeah, um, first, I guess I'll start with the, the PPE um, issue. Obviously, it was an issue. We had gaps at the beginning um, in, in supplies, things such as hand sanitizer, cleaning supplies for vehicles and, and the equipment inside, um, masks, obviously gloves. Uh, the Post Service has done a great job of procuring those supplies. Distribution, we had some challenges, but there's over 30,000 physical locations where postal employees work. So on that front, we're in pretty good shape now as far as the necessary PPE. Uh, the other thing we've done is worked with the Postal Service to the extent we can implement procedures that, that allow for social distancing, changing some of our operations, and just try to mitigate the, the risk that's that's there both in the office and what we're doing on the street, um, both through what we're doing with one another while we're working together. And then when we're out on the street with our customers, messaging to customers about maintaining social distances, distancing, changing some of the processes we use for things like obtaining signatures. We no longer have a customer do that. We have a different process for, for now. So uh, we put a number of things into place and we continue to evaluate every day looking to get better. But um, overall, it seems to have worked about as well as it could have. Yeah, I think a consistent theme we've heard from all of the associations is that what your members are experiencing very similarly mirrors what I think a lot of Americans are experiencing, you know, access to basic PPE and, you know, the understanding the importance of maintaining social distancing, addressing how, how close people are in plants. Those are all things that millions of Americans are experiencing. And what I think is so unique about your members is that they have such a, a critical job for the American people. And even with these risks, they are still, you know, stepping up to the plate. And agencies really seem to have their employees back. And I think these are situations that really test the resolve of agencies and, you know, hearing about the IRS and the Postal Service procuring PPE, you know, uh, FEMA and these different groups working with our federal veterinarians to make sure they're protected. I think it's nice to see how the tide is turning. And I think that that brings us very nicely into the last thing I want to discuss with each of you, which is what more do you need? You know, what more can our government be doing to assist your employees in making sure that they are protected and have the resources they need as they deliver their mission to the American people? Chad, why don't we start with you? Thanks, Natalia. I do, um, I do wish that federally we could um, sort of unify our effort in securing PPE it's really sad to see my agency have to compete against medical providers, state governments, and other agencies, the post office, you know, anyone, um, in order to buy masks. Um, you know, where we find ourselves like, you know, are, are, we, are we taking this PPE away from someone on a front line who needs it? Um, and that sort of centralization of that procurement process I think in this time, although that isn't normally how the federal government does business, I think would benefit not only um, my association members and my agency, but I think the entire American public would benefit from something like that as well. Um, you know, specifically, the IRS at this time re really does need additional funding to cover its payroll expenses. For months now, we've had tens of thousands of people on administrative leave and that money doesn't come back to our budget. It doesn't come out of some magical additional appropriation. Um, if we can find a way for the country to be safe enough for us to return to work to deal with uh, our backlog of correspondence and processing returns and things like that, we will need funding for overtime in order to make that happen. Um, it's a fixed amount of money. Um, and we've been spending it a pace as, as, as though we were fully operational. Um, we'd also like to see our association would like to see legislation that protects federal employees use or lose, use or lose annual leave benefit. Um, I understand that the civil service has generous leave benefits, um, but it's during this time, uh, a lot of my members are sort of conserving that leave for fear that they may need it in the future should someone or themselves become ill. There is also, you know, the reality of that we're not, no one's going anywhere. I um, mean, that leave is meant to help us relax or rest our minds. So. We're hoping to see something like that come from the Congress in the next round. 
Absolutely. Joe, I want to toss it to you. What are like just one or two top line concerns of and ways that your employees can be better supported from the federal government? Well, from, from the National Association of Federal Veterinary perspective, we want to make sure that the world recognizes the va valuable role that veterinarians play. Um, once that's done, once they're recognized as epidemiologists and policy experts in just about every federal agency, um, it, we need to recognize that they're engaged in this human and animal health mission. In fact, it's time we stopped using uh, humans as sentinels of animal diseases. We must not forget that this coronavirus outbreak began in an animal. People believe a bat, but there may be other animals involved. It, its scientific name is actually SARS coronavirus 2. SARS, which is severe acute respiratory syndrome, is its predecessor, evolved in a civet cat. And fortunately, it didn't have the same contagion as COVID-19. But we need to learn from these issues. We need to recognize that it was federal veterinarians that identified this virus in tigers in the Bronx Zoo. And we need to ensure that these unsung heroes get the support they need, the compensation they deserve, and be recognized as the heroes that they are, and be given credit for their selfless contributions. And, and the ways that we need to do that is to close that 19% vacancy gap that FSIS has. Ways to do that is to ensure that there is pay equity with the private sector. And, and lastly, our human counterparts, who, by the way, specialize in only one subspecies of primate, where veterinarians specialize in all the others, receive significant professional pay for their work within the federal government. I think that's a great point. And now I want to just pass it over to Brian with the letter carriers to wrap us up with some of the things that your employees need right now. Sure. What we need more than anything is for the Congress and the administration, the next round of stimulus package to appropriate money to get the Postal Service through this pandemic. Uh, the Postal Service does not operate on tax money, it operates solely on the sale of postage and we are expected to continue to see a drastic decline in our revenue due to the economic impact on the economy. So um, it, it is not about reforming the Postal Service. We're simply saying appropriate money for us to get us through this pandemic, just like the Congress has previously done for a lot of private companies. We can deal with those reform issues later. And I'll say anyone that wants to find more information about the support for it and the specifics um, we have a website called heroesdelivering.com that includes that information. Yeah, and I believe it's been over 40 years since the post office has even taken regular appropriations. So I think that, you know, this is a unique time and we must recognize that this is a unique time. And, you know, as you guys have said, it's about recognizing the federal employees who are doing the important work. And then it's also about compensating them and funding these agencies appropriately so that they have what they need to do their important mission. So I wanna thank everyone for joining us today. Chad Hooper from the Professional Managers Association, Joseph Vanelli from the National Association of Federal Veterinarians, and Brian Renfro from the National Association of Letter Carriers. And everyone at home who is doing their important work, helping maintain the safety of the American people. Thank you for joining us today, and we will catch up with you guys next time on Fed Talk.